Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And in the first episode of this two-parter, we talked about Léonard Autier, who was a young man from the French countryside who strolled into Paris with nothing, and he managed to become the country's most celebrated hairdresser in a startlingly short period of time. He quickly found himself styling the hair of the Dauphine of France, Marie Antoinette, and their friendship and their business relationship continued and deepened when the Austrian-born princess transitioned into the role of queen. He really reminds me of, like kids making amazing makeup videos on YouTube <laughs> who then get to become a spokes a spokesmodel. Yes. Uh, and as his time at Versailles stretched on, Leonard took on additional tasks as needed, but always had a keen sense of what was in his best interest. For example, he helped Marie Antoinette revive a French fashion magazine called Journal de Dames with the intent that his own work would be featured in its pages. Yeah, he's no fool. Uh, but always, he was creating the next big thing, and often quite literally, big in hairstyles. After a style developed by Rose Bertin appeared in Journal des Dames and became quite popular, Leonard was driven to concoct a hairstyle that would surpass it. There was some definite jealousy in the mix there. Uh, almost everyone has heard of or seen drawings of Marie Antoinette's wild hairstyles that had accessories, such as miniature figures and bird's nest and yards of fabric trims as part of the coiffure. And those are examples of what Leonard came to call the poof sentimental. As hoped, the poof sentimental eclipsed the much simpler Kezako hairstyle that Bertin had created. And from there, Leonard continued to just invent flamboyant styles. One called a hedgehog involved stacks of full curls, then a number of ringlets falling around the wearer's neck. The zephyr featured numerous flowers that moved and shook like a garden in a breeze. But, of course, the most famous of all of Marie Antoinette's hairstyles was the one that had a ship in it. Yeah, that was Leonard's work. <laughs> that style was called a coiffure à la belle poule, which was named for the ship called the Belle Poule, which had recently won a naval battle. It's so famous. That's what everybody thinks of. Ship hair. So when King Louis the Fifteenth died, Leonard was on hand for the coronation preparations for Louis the Sixteenth, and so was Rose Bertin. Once he became the Queen's hairdresser, he delegated more and more responsibility to his friend and business partner Fremel. Running the hair school and all the appointments for anyone but the Queen were handled by Fremel or one of Leonard's brothers sometimes calling themselves Leonard, so that Leonard himself could be at Her Royal Highness's beck and call at any moment. Yeah, he had had his tendrils in so many different business interests to kind of um, foster and bolster his name that then when he suddenly became hairdresser to the queen, he was like, oh, we gotta, we gotta figure out how to delegate. <laughs> Uh, and as the Queen's hairdresser, Leonard's relationship with Marie Antoinette really did deepen quite a, a great deal. He allegedly knew her every secret. And even, for example, in the late stages of her first pregnancy when she was confined to bed, Leonard was there. He would lie in bed with her so that he can comb and style her hair. And he would later joke that he and the Queen had shared the same bed. But that joke was often misinterpreted and used as evidence of the Queen's lascivious lifestyle. In his memoir, he recounted all the seedy gossip associated with Marie Antoinette of affairs and indulgent and a complete disregard for the needs of the people when spending money on herself. 
even though he included all that gossip, he also said it wasn't true. It comes across as him wanting the fun of a rumor mill while also defending his very important friend and also employer. Yeah, I mean, he was theoretically, we'll talk about the the legitimacy of his memoirs at the end of the episode, but he had remained very loyal to Marie Antoinette and to Louis XVI uh, throughout and beyond their reign. Uh, and after the Queen's second pregnancy, which resulted in the birth of the Dauphin, Louis-Joseph, in the fall of 1781, it became apparent that the Queen was losing her hair. We talked about in the first episode that even when she first came to France, uh, there was discussion about her hair growing badly, which seemed to indicate it was quite thin. But at this point, she really was having a pretty significant hair loss. And Leonard, ever the inventor, and also incredibly fearful that his fate was so closely tied to the hair that Marie Antoinette was losing, suggested that she let him cut her hair for an entirely new and less architectural style called a coiffure à l'enfant. And this style was basically shorter hair that was cut in layers and then curled and arranged in stacked ringlets. This idea of cutting hair short at this period in time was really breaking all of the rules that had gone forth in style prior to it. The queen was really, really nervous about having her hair cut relatively short, but she eventually agreed. But her status and Leonard's ability to just sell any style as the latest innovation led to the coiffure en l'enfant being adopted by most of the ladies of the court within just a few weeks. Yeah, it's not quite as dramatic as the stories of, like, women cutting their hair short in the 20s, mm-hmm. because there still was some length and curl to it, but it really was a massive departure, and it was this huge, you know, after people had kept their hair long and styled in elaborate styles for so long to just go, I'm cutting it all off, was huge, and it caught on super quickly. But as the unrest among the people of France grew during this time, Leonard was certainly aware of it, though whether he was self-aware enough to recognize his own contribution to the problem is unclear, talked about in the first episode that he created these expensive and lavish hairstyles for Marie Antoinette, which were then imitated by other women, which made them lose money that they didn't need to be spending. Uh, he really sort of contributed to that whole kind of cult of style that was irresponsible in many ways. We don't know, though, whether he was really aware that that he was such a, a key player in that. He had at this point made a great deal of money, both styling hair and by selling beauty products to the queen through his beauty school in the decade and a half that he had been working at Versailles. And at a time, for example, when a loaf of bread had reached the then exorbitant sum of eight sous due to scarcity, Leonard was charging as much as 4,000 sous for creating a new hairstyle. He was, after more than a decade and a half of working with the nobility, a very, very rich man. But as the people's dislike of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette grew, Leonard became less and less involved in their everyday lives. He continued to do the queen's hair for special occasions, but stopped being his everyday job. And for other clients, he would usually send one of his assistants. In February of 1788, Leonard moved out of Versailles to pursue other interests with the queen's blessing. He was, however, still referred to as the coiffure to the queen. But before we dive into the business venture that Leonard next decided to pursue, we're going to take a brief break and have a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. Even though he was no longer working every day with the Queen to honor Marie Antoinette's love of Italian opera, Monsieur Leonard decided to venture into theater production. In partnership with the director of the theater at Versailles, Mademoiselle Montansier, and with permission from the King, 
OTA opened the Théâtre de Monsieur at the Tuileries Palace on January 26, 1789. He was quite good at managing his theater, and reviews for the productions were also quite good, but it was costly, and the former hairdresser struggled to fund his operas. That was why he ended up in partnership with Montancier, but he and the Versailles director clashed over the nature of the operas and the plays to be staged there. Montancier tended toward the sorts of traditional fare that were appropriate for Versailles, whereas Léonard wanted to expand into other types of productions. Léonard eventually found an investor to buy Mademoiselle Montancier's interest in the theater. Yeah, and that's actually going to come up again later. Um, additionally, this theater was a combination of two troops of actors, one that was French and one that was Italian, and the two groups did not mesh well, and there was constant fighting. And even with additional financial backers, by the end of the spring, just like four months after they had opened, Leonard was pretty much out of money. When King Louis XVI assembled the Estates Générales in early May of 1789, Leonard was requested by Marie Antoinette to style her hair for the gathering. He immediately saw that she was not the woman he had served for so many years, and she told her old friend that she had, quote, sad thoughts followed by gloomy premonitions. Knowing that the public was likely to jeer when she made her appearance, she wanted to at least look her best and tasked Leonard with achieving that wish. And Leonard saw the queen pretty regularly in the months leading up to the official start of the revolution, and he undoubtedly witnessed many of the key events that were involved, including the Women's March on Versailles and the royal family being captured and taken to Paris. And he also engaged in a bit of spy work for the king on occasion, which indicates he was deeply trusted by Louis XVI. When the royal family fled Paris for Varennes, Léonard's younger brother, Jean-François, traveled with them, although it appears that Léonard did not know that he was part of the party that left at the time. In the midst of all this upheaval, Léonard and his wife, Marie-Louise, were still adding to their family. They had three daughters already, and then they welcomed a son at the end of 1790. By the end of 1791, though, the couple had ended their marriage. And when the king and the queen were arrested at Varennes and returned to Paris in June of 1791, Leonard once again visited the queen, and uh, he found her to be so different from her normal self that it really struck him and was very affecting. She was constantly under guard, but in this case, instead of seeming gloomy, she had almost achieved through all of this stress a level of ease with the men who watched over her. She would converse with them, and uh, she abandoned the trappings of court hierarchy to sort of just be a normal human and have fairly common-level relationships with these people that were guarding her. In the meantime, Léonard Artier's name had become a hindrance to the already struggling theater. His ongoing association with Marie Antoinette was basically poison to the business. So first his name was removed, and then he was asked to step away by the investors. It was renamed Théâtre Farce. Marie Antoinette, finding her family in desperate financial circumstances, asked Léonard to travel to London with a collection of diamonds that had traveled with her to France from Vienna when she was just a teenage girl. This was important that she didn't want it to be a diamond that was uh, technically from France's money. It was her own that she had had well before she was part of the royal family in France. And Autier agreed that he would do this, and he made his arrangements, and he went to England as requested, arriving there at the end of December 1791. 
Leonard was able to sell the diamonds, and he was, he also set out to see who might be sympathetic to Louis the Sixteenth and willing to help the French royals, which he did over the course of the next year and a little beyond. That was ultimately a disappointing exercise. He did manage to connect with Dubarry in England, and although she had been exiled from Versailles, she was still loyal to the crown, especially as Louis the Sixteenth had set her up with a pension. Yeah, as the king's favorite, as the king was nearing death, she basically was sent away because he was having last rites, and she could not be part of that. Um, but yeah, they set her up with was really a pretty nice uh, amount of money after that, and she did remain loyal to the crown. Uh, she had actually stayed in France when others had fled. And many of the royals and members of the palace households had appealed to her to send them money as they had fled with very little. And she had been unable to really send anything because her home was under constant surveillance. So she knew if she tried to get money out to somebody else, it would immediately cause uh, a, basically a raid of her house. And eventually, she decided that she would leave France to assist the scattered royals. Uh, she traveled to London to find some diamonds that had been stolen from her. Uh, at least that's what she told government officials. She actually made several trips to London to look for these diamonds, but this was the fourth. And there had been a robbery of Dubarry's diamonds, but she had also traveled to London to sell to others with the intent that the proceeds would be sent to parties working to fight for the royalist cause. Leonard suggested that they use the same jeweler he had sold the queen's diamonds to. And this plan was eventually agreed upon, although Leonard entered the shop alone. And he really wanted to use his jeweler because when he had sold Marie Antoinette's diamonds, he got a lot more from for them than they had been assessed for in France. So he thought, like, this, we're going to get more money if we go to my guy. And so while he was in the shop alone, Dubarry wanted to avoid revealing that they were hers, and consequently exactly how much her time as the king's favorite had earned her. Uh, and so this entire setup led to problems. First, a passerby recognized Dubarry and chatted her up, even after she curtly explained that Leonard was inside selling a small diamond so she could settle her debts. Second, Leonard, who got more than they were expecting for the diamonds, yelled an enormous sum from the jeweler's door to Dubarry in her carriage, 2.2 million livres, which at the time would have been worth around 165,000 pounds in English currency. Yeah, I did one calculation, and we've talked about before how you it's really hard to do, like, historical money and what it's worth today. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is accurate, but it seemed like using calculators that I found online from fairly reputable sources, it's like going, we got $38 million! <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which you wouldn't want to stand in the street and yell. Well, yeah, at why someone. would you? Why would you just yell that out the door, dude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. not not the brightest move ever. Uh, but this huge number of uh, and the fact that it was the sale of diamonds was overheard in the street, uh, and a rumor quickly arose that the diamonds had been stolen. And by evening, police came looking for Leonard at the house where he was living, and Leonard, assisted by a friend, jumped out the window to evade capture. Madame du Barry had heard of the misfortune. She had, you know, friends in London, and she was able to clear the matter up by producing proof that the diamonds were in fact hers. Uh, Mr. Pitt, the Chancellor of the Treasury, had already suspected that they were legitimately du Barry's diamonds, and he was sympathetic, actually, to uh, the woman and her cause. He knew that she was probably trying to get money to help uh, the the royals reachieve their position in France. He knew that she was probably trying to fund the efforts to restore the French monarchy, but he had sent police to arrest Leonard, but only as a matter of appearance. Uh, and they had actually, his his policemen had been instructed to take this man to dinner and then just let him go. 
So coming up, we will talk about the serious downturn in the royal family situation. But before we get to that, we'll have one more quick sponsor break. So after that little skirmish with the police was settled, Dubarry and Leonard were able to send a pretty significant sum of money to the cause. But things in Paris they did not know yet had already gotten much worse for the royal family. On January 21st, 1793, before the money that Leonard and Dubarry sent had gotten to its intended royalist recipients, King Louis XVI was executed by guillotine. Leonard continued to communicate and work with the princes of France who were living in exile and still plotting a way for the monarchy to regain its power. And he also, during this time, received word that one of his brothers had been executed, though there's actually some inconsistency in the account of when he received the news and precisely who had been put to death. For some time, there was actually confusion as to whether or not it had actually been Leonard who was executed. So you remember we mentioned in the first episode that problem where Leonard recruited his brothers as assistants and they all used the same name for business purposes. And it appears that was the case in this mix-up over exactly who had been guillotined. It said Otier, Leonard, and then in parentheses, Jean-Francois. But for a long time, people just thought it was Monsieur Leonard. In any case, it was clear that France was not a safe place for one so closely associated with the monarch who had been overthrown and executed, and the bad news continued to come for Leonard. Marie Antoinette was executed on, on October 16, 1793. Dubarry, who had returned to France despite Leonard begging her not to, was also put to death on December 8th of the same year. Yeah, she wanted to go back for her things, basically, like she had had left everything she had, and he was like, please don't, it's not worth it. She's like, that's all I have, I gotta go get them. And that did not work out. Uh, so after spending a brief time in Verona, where the French king Louis XVIII was set up in an exile's court after the young king Louis XVII, the child of Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI, had died in prison, Leonard next moved on to the German duchy of Brunswick, which he quite enjoyed, but he eventually left there and he ended up in St. Petersburg in 1798. There, at the age of 58, he rebooted his career as a hairdresser. Tsar Paul I greeted him warmly, and Empress Maria employed Leonard at once. He established a comfortable life for himself there, even though it was nothing vaguely akin to the really lavish life that he had had in Versailles. He worked in St. Petersburg for 16 years, and just three years into his stay, he had been asked to style the corpse of Tsar Paul I after he was murdered for refusing to abdicate. After Leonard applied makeup to the deceased and arranged his hair, it was said that the man looked better in death than he ever had alive. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't a classically attractive man, but Leonard really made him look quite good. Uh, and while Leonard lived in St. Petersburg, a fire actually destroyed all of his personal papers. So consequently, we don't have a whole lot of information on his personal life during this time, though he clearly managed to keep himself very busy styling the hair of Russian nobles. When the French monarchy was restored in 1814, Leonard returned to France, hoping that his years of loyal service and the great amounts of money that he had lent various members of the nobility in the early years of the revolution would be rewarded, and maybe he would get a title. He was given a job as the doorkeeper of King Louis XVIII's apartments, obviously a position far below what he had hoped for. Yeah, I thought maybe I'd be a marquee. I'm a door guy. Uh, Encouraged by a friend who was a woman that had actually been his mistress before the revolution and who he reconnected with after returning to Paris, Leonard petitioned to open another theater. 
but getting a royal privilege to open the venue was bound up in red tape and lack of interest. There were already many theaters throughout the city, so adding yet another seemed like an enterprise unlikely to take off with any real success. But he also had supporters within the nobility who pointed out that one more theater privilege granted by the king was really not a particularly big risk, so it would be better to grant a loyal servant of the royal line such a privilege than someone who might not be a loyalist. So Leonard persisted. He had been told to draw up a petition for the opera comique for the Minister of the Interior with the assurance that the royal family would support it. So Monsieur Leonard had a friend help write the petition, and that same friend promised to have an acquaintance that worked within the ministry keep an eye on it and report its progress. And Leonard's friends even managed to have the petition put in a beautiful clean envelope and placed directly onto the desk of the minister so it would not get lost in the flurry of other petitions that were constantly being sent to the office. But on his desk, it sat and sat. It stayed on the desk for four months while other petitions piled up as well. When another of Leonard's friends went to the minister to inquire about the status of the petition, the minister pointed to his desk and said, I am keeping Leonard's matter before me. Technically, that was true, but he had not touched it. Yeah, kind of a smarmy, snarky way to handle the query. Uh, eventually, one of the princes spoke to Leonard on the matter. And when Leonard asked if the king had signed his order, he thought, oh, he wants to talk to me. This must be congratulations. He was told, in fact, that he needed to let this opera comique matter completely go, that he was not going to be getting his theater, but that he was being named Orderer General of State Funerals, which is a cushy job that was more title than work, and it came with an annual salary of 12,000 francs. At first, he thought this appointment was a joke, but he was assured that it was not. While Leonard was sad to let go of his theater plan, he thanked the prince profusely and adjusted to the idea that he was now a state funeral director. His installation ceremony was filled with formality as all of his staff appeared rank and file before him. That evening, though, they all dined together and attended the opera, and Leonard was pleased to discover that his new staff was quite lively and fun, which he had not expected given their profession. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it seems so, so bizarre to me. Oh, you want to start another theater and you're a hairdresser? Would you like to be a funeral director? What? Uh, and while this turn of events, though, did seem to be getting the 73-year-old's life back on track, this was certainly better than being a doorman, uh, he was soon sued by his former business partner in the Théâtre de Monsieur, Madame Montancier, for unpaid annuities that he owed her. The proceedings took place in 1819, and the court found in her favor, and Léonard suddenly found himself responsible for paying the woman 500,000 francs, money that he absolutely did not have. Uh, but he died before he could pay it off on March 24th of 1820. Leonard presided over only one funeral procession on his job as orderer of state funerals when the Prince de Condé died in 1818. When Leonard himself died, his staff laid him to rest, although it was a very small funeral with few in attendance. Of Leonard's children, only two of his daughters survived. Uh, they inherited 716 francs and, a, and an assortment of small jewels, including one tiny piece which had been the property of Marie Antoinette. But at that point, Leonard owed his maid 375 francs and his landlord 250 francs. So other than his famous shell comb, which had styled the most famous and powerful heads of France, there really was not much for his kids to keep. Leonard's memoir... Souvenir de Léonard, coiffure de la reine Marie Antoinette, 
weren't published until 20 years after his death, and their legitimacy has been questioned. While the details of Monsieur Leonard's exploits are almost certainly exaggerated, as is the case with a lot of memoirs we talk about on the show, many of the events in the memoirs do align with events that were playing out in France, Europe, and Russia at the time. These memoirs were reprinted in the 1890s. Yeah, and then they got an English language printing in the 19-teens. I think 1919, but I'm not sure. But the thing that makes Leonard, to me, a really interesting figure is how his creative and outlandish hair designs were, to some degree, as we said, held responsible for the moral and fiscal downfall of many of France's women and the country as a whole as a consequence. And this is is that thing we always talk about. Uh, it serves as a perfect example of how one person, in this case, one person who walked into Paris with nothing but a comb and ambition and a serious case of confidence can make this really huge impact on world events. Like yeah. You don't think, oh, I bet the Queen's hairdresser really was an important figure, but he really was in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so, yeah, to me, it kind of, you know, uh, fills that that constant uh, litany that I'm always chanting about. Every person is making history all the time. Yeah. Even if they're they're just, and I'm using the air quotes because I don't think of it that way, just, you know, doing an updo, making hair. <laughs> you have some listener mail for us as well. I do. I have two pieces of listener mail, though I'll be quick about it. Uh, the first one is from our listener Jennifer and her dad. They have sent us a variety of postcards as they've traveled around. And this one is from the Victoria and Albert Museum. Says, hi ladies, it's me again. Today my dad and I went to the Victorian Albert. It's a huge place and they had a special exhibit on clothing and fashion. I know you both would have loved. Uh, many people have sent me stuff from that and I do. Uh, I have an exhibition catalog from friend of the show, Brian Young, that he brought me back from when he went. She said, so I thought I would send you a card of this lovely corset. My dad and I argued over this one, uh, whether to send this one or a dress, but I won since I write the cards. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers and thanks as always for the lovely podcast. Uh, I love it and I'm glad you went with the corset because I love corset pictures. Like, the architecture of corsets is fascinating. Yeah. And it's got a really beautiful spoon busk, and it's just lovely. Uh, the second one is another gift. We've been getting so many great gifts lately from our listener, Laura. She says, hi, thank you so much for all the hard work you do to present a well-researched and enjoyable podcast. I've always loved history, and you do an incredible job of bringing knowledge and passion to subjects that are too often overlooked or forgotten. I know a lot of people think history is boring, and it breaks my heart because they don't know what they're missing. If only every teacher could bring history to life like you do. That is so sweet. Uh, she says, I'm an artist with a dull day job, and I listen to your show during quiet moments at my desk and while working on art at home. I recently completed the enclosed decks of cards, which are inspired by my love of medieval and early modern history. I actually have a master's degree in medieval history. Each face card represents a real historical figure from the medieval early modern period, and there are even some post-show topics, including Tycho Brahe, Joan of Arc, and Juana of Castile. I did a bit of research on Juana for my master's thesis and was very moved by her story. I really appreciate your episode on her. Uh, so she sent these amazing cards. They're absolutely beautiful. I think I've said before on the show that I love decks of cards. Like, I collect them because I use them as pattern weights. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited that I will have one of these in my sewing room and I'll get to look at all the prettiness all the time. They are beautiful. They're absolutely lovely. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Laura. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this episode or any other, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. You can come and visit our website, mistinhistory.com for all of our episodes and show notes on anything Tracy and I have worked on together. So come and visit us. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 